Welcome to Profiles at WFIU. I'm Gina Asher. Bloomington, Indiana native Michael Carita is no longer an up-and-coming mystery writer. With the publication of his seventh novel and number eight on the way, he's been lauded by best-selling authors Dennis Lehane, Michael Connolly, and Dean Kuntz. He's also racking up awards. His work has won the Los Angeles Times Book Prize and Great Lake Books Award, and has been nominated for the Edgar, Quill, Seamus, and Barry Awards. Welcome, Michael. Thank you very much. My pleasure. That first book, Tonight I Said Goodbye, was published when you were only 20 years old. It was nominated for an Edgar Award and won the St. Martin's Press Best First Novel Prize. That's a lot of success. Did you or others worry that it was a fluke? I think everybody probably worried um, that it was a fluke, no one more so um, than myself. But I would also say that I I was already working. By the time the book was published, I was already working on the next one, um, and I was feeling better about the next one. And in my experience, the ability to stay ahead of publication date has always been a help with that sort of stress and concern. The, um, the moment when a book comes out and you begin to see a critical response, if it's great, that can add a certain amount of pressure. Um, if it's terrible, obviously, that can be crushing. So I like to try and be well into the next book by the time I have one released. That way, um, my focus is on the new story. And the, uh, the book that's coming out and getting the response seems distanced. Uh, that's been a help to me. But a lot of people out there in our listening audience probably have some manuscripts in their drawers, and they're wondering, how did you approach publishers to begin with at your age? Right. I was very uh, fortunate in that I was working at the Herald Times and had Bob Hamill, the veteran uh, sports writer and one of the most decorated journalists in, um, in the state history, as a mentor. And Bob had worked with Bob Knight on his autobiography, my story, um, which was published by St. Martin's. My first manuscript, which is now in a drawer and has never been published, so I'm one of those, I'm one of those people. Um, Bob helped me get that to an editor named Pete Wolverton at St. Martin's Press. And Pete was interested. For a little while, it looked as if um, that one might, might have a chance. And then they, they ended up passing on that. Pete came back to me and said that he wanted to see anything I wrote in the future. Um, I was disappointed that the first book hadn't worked out, but he certainly wanted to stay in touch. And I announced with um, you know, great enthusiasm that I was already well into the sequel, which was met with um, you know, deafening silence because I think when, it, when an editor passes on the first book, the last thing they expect is for you to say that the, you're working on the sequel. But I was feeling very good about the sequel at that point, and that was Tonight I Say Goodbye, which ended up being the first published book. I submitted that to Pete directly, and I also hedged my bets and entered it in the contest um, that St. Martin's ran. And the contest winners had been edited by a woman named Ruth Cavan for years. Um, she just passed away a few months ago, which was a real loss to the publishing world. She's been around for a long time and done a lot of great work. Because of my relationship with Pete, when I won the contest, he kind of poached me from from Ruth's list, and I worked with Pete on the next five books. You talked about approaching someone to sort of be your mentor and guide, and that was Bob right. Hamill. But even before that, while a high schooler, you had also approached a private investigator. Yes. So you had twin interests. You were writing novels as a high schooler, but you also were interested in journalism and in 
private investigation, and you went out and found mentors. Right, and I was I was very fortunate in finding good mentors and um, people who really went out of their way to help, which, um, you know, Don Johnson was the name of the investigator I worked with, Trace Investigations here in Bloomington. When he met me, I was uh, 16 years old, didn't even have a driver's license. I couldn't bring a whole lot to the table in terms of uh, helping a detective agency. And he took me on as part of an internship program at Bloomington North, um, which was my high school. And that internship grew into a part-time job when I turned 18. I worked part-time for him throughout school at IU. And then when I left IU, um, went to work for him full-time. And as I look back over that, I just see repeated acts of generosity and and Don going above and beyond um, to both uh, explain the the business of um, being a detective, but also always appreciating that I wanted to be a writer. And, and understanding that that was the ultimate goal. Um, I was very lucky with the sort of people I came across. Bob Hamill, there's, there's no more generous person um, in town. He's just, he is the definition of class. And between Bob and Don, I was, I was able to get several years ahead of where I think I would have been on my own. Um, actually, let me remove the phrase where I think. I definitely was able to <laughs> shave several years off thanks to their contributions. Well, you also worked at the newspaper here, which is another form of storytelling. But how does that connect to to writing in the mystery genre? It was a tremendous help. I worked weekend police beat, and that gave me a a better appreciation of the uh, procedural aspects, but also the experience of writing on deadline, being forced to produce, uh, the idea of writer's block that the novelists love to talk about, the idea of this creative struggle, and it is always a struggle, but that there are times when you can just wilt beneath it and you need to go away for a few months and wait for inspiration. There was never an experience in my newspaper time when I walked into uh, Bob Salzberg's office and said, you know, I know you need this story by Sunday, but the muse isn't speaking. <laughs> Good that, luck with that. <laughs> that doesn't fly too well in the newspaper business. And so the, the discipline of writing every day, writing with deadline pressures, and learning how to self-edit – um, and being around some great writers. You know, I learned so much from Laura Lane, um, from Gina Asher, from Bob Hamill and you know, Mike Leonard. There are a lot of good writers at that newspaper, and I was able to, uh, to be around them every day. And that, that is tremendously helpful to a young writer. But that doesn't solve the problem of procrastination. Surely you can tell us that there are still times when things just aren't working out. Are there still things, things that aren't published that are in that drawer? Oh, of course. Um, the book I'm working on right now, I think it'll be about 350 pages in final draft form, and I will have written about 2,500 oh. to get there. What what was it you just said about self-editing? Self-editing, yes. Um, I, I think I've been fairly ruthless with that, and you need to be. My storytelling approach is to start with an inciting incident and a character. That's really all I have in my head. And we venture off into the darkness together, um, which requires a lot of rewriting because I don't have an outline. I don't have an idea of how the story is going to unfold. I don't even know my character well enough to understand how they're going to change over the course of the narrative. And good fiction to me, good storytelling, is showing how the events of the plot change the character internally. The external journey has to change the character internally. But that usually doesn't happen at the keyboard. 
No, it it, it doesn't. Um, that's again the, the many drafts, um, but it never leaves your mind. You know, when I when I'm stuck on a book, I I tend to that's when I head to the gym. I'll head to uh, Brown County or McCormick's Creek State Parks, um, hiking. Being in motion seems to be a real help for me when I when I hit those snags. And because I don't know the, the character evolution and the, the plot evolution, when I start, I end up riding in the wrong direction for um, you know, weeks at a time often. At 2,000 pages. At 2,000 pages, yeah. So you, you, have to, you have to reach this point where you're okay cutting large portions out. And that's a difficult thing. Reporters know how much that hurts. <laughs> yeah, it, you work it, it so hard hurt. to get that, you hate to cut anything out. Absolutely. I mean, you, you look at a month's work and say, well, I've got to hit the delete key on that. But um, it's it, it's gotten easier after, and this is my seventh published book. It's the 10th I've written. It, it's beginning to get a little bit easier just because I know that it represents forward progress in its own way. You may say it's getting easier, and as a writer, that's probably true. Practice makes us all better. Um, but you also sort of, well, so far, have left behind uh, the the pair in four of your books. And I'm talking about Lincoln Perry and Joe Pritchard. Right. Uh, three, your first three books were about that duo, Lincoln Perry, the young P.I., Joe Pritchard, the seasoned professional kind of mentoring him. Right. You left them and went off to do very different kinds of books. Will we ever hear from them again? And, and how could you give up a good thing? A lot of new writers especially would not want to abandon something that's working. Right. Well, first of all, I would, I would immediately cast blame in another direction and say that they left me. You have to respond to the stories that are um, in your head asking to be told. And I'd written four books with those characters. I hope to write with those characters again. Um, I don't know when, um, but I, I do hope to return to them. But the stories that were in my mind after the fifth book, The Silent Hour, were not Lincoln and Joe's stories. And I really wanted, I'd wanted for years to set something down in West Baden in French Lick. I wanted to tell a story about that place, and it seemed critical to bridge eras. The restoration of the hotels led by Bill and Gail Cook 70 years after the golden age um, and the collapse and decline. So I'd wanted to write about that area for a long time, but I felt as if it was way too contrived to send Lincoln on a case down to West Baden. It it just didn't fit. I wanted to write about the area from a perspective of of the area. And as I thought about bridging eras, the thing that kept coming into my mind was this should be a ghost story. Ghost stories inherently bridge eras. I was worried about the negative response because I had sort of established this detective series. So I intended for it to be a novella, and I was intending to publish it uh, locally and and maybe even under a pseudonym. It ended up being over 500 pages long, so the self-editing doesn't always work. Well, it also got a lot of attention. Was that your first Little Brown? It was my first book with Little Brown. Um, They did a fantastic job getting the word out. Um, it, it, it sold better and got more attention than anything I'd written previously. So it, it was a, a business gamble, um, but it, one that you know paid off. And, and that's no credit due to me, but uh, Little Brown really rolled out in support of that book tremendously. Well, someone had to dream up the idea of the water and the kind of metaphysical ghost story. That so-called The River and Cypress House both have 
that happening, which we didn't see in Lincoln Perry or um, any of your previous books. So that's kind of courageous. That all takes a lot of research, too, and just getting the the information together, learning about Florida in the 30s, which is where the Cypress House is set. You had to use your journalism and your detective skills in ways maybe you hadn't in other books. And I know that you also researched a lot about Cleveland for Lincoln Perry books. But this was a whole new kind of work, wasn't it, for you? Yeah, the Cypress House in particular was um, something I'd never done before. Writing a period piece brings a set of challenges. You not only have to research the period and try to portray it accurately, but uh, in terms of dialogue and character development, you know, what are they wearing, what do they look like, all of these details suddenly become an issue. Now, when you're writing a contemporary story, you know that when someone walks in a room, they can turn on the lights with a light switch at the wall. I realized as I was writing The Cypress House, wait a second, do they have lights? Do they have switches? All of these questions that you hadn't anticipated or I hadn't anticipated are suddenly an issue. So that did require a higher level of research than anything I'd done in the past. And what I discovered after I researched all of these details um, and got farther into the drafts was that I needed to get the details out of the way as much as possible. It's one of those things, uh, you understand this, it's a classic journalist problem. You become fascinated by all the details of this story and have to remember that the reader cares about the story. So it was finding a balance of do I have enough historical detail and sense of place and sense of time to get people to buy into this world? And then the question is, do I have too much? Is it getting in the way of the story? And that balance was was a new challenge for me. Well, you even mentioned it, I think, in the foreword where you thank someone who helped you with a lot of research that you ended up not using. Yeah, I felt so bad about that. It's a a wonderful writer, Stephanie Pentoff. Um, I think her her third book is on the way out, and I'd really recommend uh, people read her. But Stephanie is an expert in forensic history and police um, and forensic work from the 1920s, the turn of the century, just when all of these techniques were beginning to become prevalent. I think her books are set um, in the early 1900s in in New York City. And I had a bunch of questions about how quickly a corpse could be identified in 1935 in a backwater town in Florida. And Stephanie went well out of her way to give me uh, all of the information I needed. I wrote the scene. It survived two drafts. And then I got into the third draft and realized I just had to let that go. So I, I felt I owed her both an acknowledgement and an apology in the book because her time was wasted, but I really well, appreciate it. who knows? It. You may use it I might still. use it again, yeah. Yes. So. It's, not, it's not dead. It's just hiding for a while. Exactly. Even with the different time periods and locations, though, your novels share common protagonists. They're youngish men, though they are getting older. They're conflicted. They're unsure of themselves. They have doubts. Is this a literary tool, or are you drawing on yourself, maybe your friends? Where do you get this angst? I'm sure it's it's a combination of both. Um, the idea of a protagonist who's a conflicted character seems to me absolutely imperative in, in good fiction, um, good storytelling of any sort, e- even you know, a film. If we meet a character who's happy and well-adjusted and everything in their life is just fine— Where's the fascination? Why are we watching this person? 
So you, I want a character who's conflicted, often haunted by the past. Those issues make the character more real to me, more fascinating. And your job at the end of the day as a storyteller is to create a connection, a bond between the reader and the character. They have to feel as if they they can relate to this person in some way. And I think most of us are conflicted. We're insecure about some things. We have angst about some things. And it's easier for us as readers to ride with a character who has that sort of fallibility, that sort of weakness. So you get to see that person develop and change and exactly. deal with, with what happens, the action. Exactly. I, the stories I respond to best are stories about people who have to face down their own demons. Um, this is when I get back to the idea of the plot is a series of external events that shapes the character's internal journey. And when you have that happening, you have the right balance, I think, in a story. You have to see the person change. If the character never changes, you know, why are we watching? This is a, a question I've seen asked a lot of Mad Men in recent um, articles. We're five seasons deep into Mad Men now, and we've seen Don Draper, who was originally a very compelling character. We've seen him continue to make bad decision after bad decision after bad decision. And he doesn't appear to be on any sort of journey toward redemption it's becoming a question that I see from a lot of critics. Why do we continue to watch this guy make terrible decisions um, that, that affect people in really negative ways? Why are we embracing him? And I think it's a good question. I'm curious to see how that show will progress and, and what they'll do with him. Unless we just like watching a train wreck and we're glad it's not us. Right, but you can only do that for so long, I think. And, and that's the issue with, with Draper. How long do I want to watch this guy you know, swirl around the drain? Um, eventually, <laughs> eventually you get tired of that. You know, it's, it's, it's a question every writer asks, and I, I like to bring a conflicted character into the story, a haunted character, a flawed character, and try to take them out with some note of hope and redemption. That seems to be a pretty consistent theme. I haven't gone for the purely tragic ending yet, which is really classic noir. At some point, I think I, I absolutely will. Uh, I, I love the noir tradition so much. Uh, the detective story doesn't really fit into noir because the detective usually comes out on top. You know, noir characters are doomed from the start, and we watch them march off toward their doom. The detective has to live another day because there's another book. Yeah, if you're carrying it in a series, then yeah. it's it's particularly important. But even a standalone detective novel, if there's resolution to the crime, they tend not to fit what I think of as as real noir because in in traditional noir, the, you're watching doomed characters make bad decisions that lead them to this inevitable dark place. And in that journey is, is the fascination. I don't think I've done that yet. And my work is consistently labeled as noir. Well, I don't really think I have written a, a true noir yet. So there's something to aspire to. Exactly. Well, there are always, always new challenges out there. You've also moved into... Um uh, settings that are different places, like right. Florida was the last one, and you've split your time between Indiana and Florida in recent years. Cleveland was the setting for the Lincoln Perry series. In Bloomington, I think one character visited Nick's, but we haven't really had anything set in Bloomington. The closest we've gotten is West Baden. Exactly. We've had we've had two references to uh, Bloomington. In So Called the River, Eric Shaw, the protagonist, stops by Nick's on his way south. And in Envy the Night, 
the book opens in Bloomington. Frank Temple is a student at IU. And I think when we meet Frank, Frank he's hanging from a light pole outside of Nick's, rather inebriated, and uh, on his way to jail. Um, by the end of the first chapter, he's he's headed out of town, though. So I haven't written anything set in Bloomington. It hasn't um, been fodder for the mill yet. You know, it is. It always is. And I, I could point to various moments in, in each book that I'm drawing more from Bloomington than the place that the book is actually set. I haven't wanted to tell a story set entirely in Bloomington yet. It's maybe getting too close to home, blending reality. I need to believe in the fictional world I'm creating. And that becomes harder for me when I set it in the hometown because I start bumping into all of these things that are very real, uh, very familiar in the day-to-day life. And that that can sort of jerk you out of the fictional world that um, you're trying to create. With all that said, I'm sure that I will write a Bloomington book at some point. I really expect to do that. Maybe it will be a historical Bloomington that you describe, though. Yeah, give me a little more distance. That's not (laughs) a bad idea. There you go. (laughs) So what are you reading right now that we should know about? I've been reading a lot of nonfiction lately, but the the last novel I read that I really uh, was excited by was a book called The Terror of Living, which is a debut novel by Urban Waite. And I just met Urban in uh, San Francisco. We did a signing together. Uh, great guy, just a, a tremendous writer. It's it's a thriller, it's a crime novel, but he has um, prose gifts that are, are really rare. And the book's been getting outstanding reviews, deservedly so. Um, I'd recommend that one. And um, also reading a very good book about Roosevelt's exploration of the Amazon called The River of Doubt. Do these all play into something you're going to write about? You may not even know that at the time. Yeah, I think I, I don't know it at the time, but they, they always do. Um, when you know, the, the classic question of where do you get your ideas from, um, I, I would say without question I'm most influenced by what I read. And uh, someone, nonfiction or fiction, someone will hit on an idea or a place that suddenly sparks you know, a, a creative desire and, and, and a way you go chasing that. So I think um, reading is, is really what I draw from the most. When you look at the back of the book covers, the jackets with the blurbs, a lot of those people are people you like as writers, you admire as writers. Absolutely. And some of them you've befriended or become friends with. Right. How do they act as mentors or do you feel now you're a peer? I look at every writer uh, as someone to learn from. Um, I guess we're peers and that we're publishing and we're on the shelves together. But um, all of all of those writers have been around a lot longer and have produced a better body of work um, and for a longer time. I've gotten to know writers like Dennis Lehane and Michael Connolly pretty well. Um, you, it's funny you mentioned looking at the back cover because the back cover of The Cypress House was really it, – it's one that sticks with me. And it is very humbling to read through those, those quotes. Um, there are writers there who I've never met, Ron Rash – Daniel Woodrell, Dean Koontz, um, who, the idea that these people are, are reading your work and then responding to it favorably is just a, a really special thing. Um, Stephen King writes about how every book has and every writer has an ideal reader. And it's it's an interesting concept. He says his ideal reader is uh, his wife, Tabitha. For me, the ideal reader really um, exists in kind of a an amalgam of all of those writers who influenced me. I, I really think that that's 
those people are in my mind when I'm writing. I'm, I'm thinking about the bar that they've set and, and that I hold in my head as, as a fictional standard. And those are really the, the people I consider the ideal readers. So if, if they do read the book and then if they have a favor, favorable response, that means just an enormous amount. What about people who aren't necessarily your peers? What about reviewers? Ah, the critics, yes. Are you asking how much I worry about their opinions? or I'm asking about if you read them, if you take heed. In, in other words, I'm thinking of, I believe it was Marilyn Stasio wrote about the Cypress House mm-hmm. and liked it, but had a little comment about, and don't tell me you don't know what I'm talking about. No, I know exactly what it is. <laughs> a little comment about something like um, it bogs down a little in the the noir, the noir elements. Yes, there's some. It, were holding pieces until until the ghost story returned. So you did read it. I, I read all of the reviews from key publications. Um, I don't go out and do Google searches. Um, I don't don't follow the Amazon reviews, but I, I try and read all of the critical reviews. And I think there's something to be learned. You over time you develop a sense of what critics tend to get your work. And those are the people, that, and this doesn't have to be a good review, but they tend to exhibit an understanding of what you're trying to do. Uh, those reviewers are of great interest to me because if they respond favorably or if they respond with you know, maybe some disappointment, I'm very interested in that because I feel like they have a, a shared understanding. Um, Stasio was an interesting interesting case. She's reviewed, she's reviewed me four times now, I think, and She's loved two of the books and has not been a big fan of two of the others. And I really respect that about her. Um, she's reviewing the book, not you know, not the writer. She doesn't just say, you know, this this is one of my you know writers that I really enjoy, so I'm going to always give them a, a favorable nod. Um, I think she misread The Cypress House. I think it's supposed to be a noir um, gangster story noir influence gangster story with the supernatural thread as really what I think of as the B story. Um, she inverted that, and she thinks it's a ghost story in which the, the, the crime novel elements got in the way. But I was very interested in that because it made me wonder about my execution. Um, well, let me tell you what I thought, okay. not that you're paying me to think. <laughs> I thought the impending hurricane in the book was prolonged, because the hurricane was coming, and we had to build that tension. Yeah, hurricanes don't just sweep in yeah. um, like tornadoes, uh, which I had just written about in the other book. It was it was my weather trilogy that I'm working on. Yeah, the hurricane is, is, is supposed to be a, an atmospheric quality of, of something building. Um, you know that that was how I intended it. Now, whether it works for every reader, no, it's never going to. Reading's a subjective thing, um, and and you know, Marilyn, I feel like uh, I, she. She's due to due to like the next one because she seems to <laughs> to take a you know an on and off approach. Um, she selected so called the river as one of her favorite crime novels of the year, and I was really counting on getting a savage review from her on that book because I don't see her review many things that have supernatural elements at all. So I was bracing myself for a very negative review. Instead, she really liked that one, the Cypress House. I I had a feeling Stasio will probably enjoy this. And then she didn't enjoy it so much. So I, I, can't, uh, I can't guess with Marilyn. Well, a little foreshadowing here about the next book, The Ridge. 
You've said in the past that you like to listen to music to inspire whatever novel you're currently working on, and I think you've said that you listened to Short Trip Home, Edgar Meyer's work, when you were working on So Cold the River. Tell us what you're listening to now so we can kind of guess what the ridge will be like. I've been listening to a lot of soundtrack music. Uh, Nick Cave and Warren Ellis have a collection, um, The Assassination of Jesse James, The Proposition, and The Road. They work together on those soundtracks, and they're very moody and haunting and um, kind of ominous. I've been listening to those quite a bit. Uh, Jacob Dylan's song, Everybody's Hurting, has been uh, a, a key recurring theme of the playlist for The Ridge. Um, but the song that that I think influenced it the most, and the lyrics will actually appear in the book, is a song from Josh Ritter called Lantern. You've selected some music to take us out to a break. Tell us about it. Well, why don't we listen to Lantern, um, because I just mentioned that. And the ridge centers on an eccentric who built a lighthouse in the woods, and it's met with amusement initially by the locals. And as is the case in most of my work, it's not so amusing. There's something far darker there. Um, but lanterns seem to capture, lyrically capture, a, a lot of the ideas that I wanted to um, hold my head about the man who built this lighthouse in the woods. And to me, at least, it's a story of uh, the struggle against the darkness in the world. And um, he uses light and dark symbolically in a way that, that really resonated with what I've been doing writing this book. Be the light of my lantern, the light of my lantern, be the light Be the light of my lantern, the light of my lantern tonight Be the light of my lantern, the light of my lantern, be the light Honey, light of my lantern, the light of my lantern tonight It's a hungry world out there Even the wind will take a bite And I can feel the world circling Sniffing around me in the night And the lost sheep grow teeth Forsake the lambs and lie with the lions Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Welcome back. We're talking with novelist Michael Carita, author of several mystery novels. Michael, novelists are the ultimate self-employed artists. Tell us about the business of being your own brand. That's the uh, the scariest part of it. You know, I think um, we, we'd all prefer to just worry about the stories and not have to worry about the business side. But if you intend to make a living at it, um, obviously you need to be conscious of it. It's been a challenge for me because you have contract years when you sign up for two or three books, and you know those those years are going to be your better paid years. Um, and so the the need to budget and have a, a pretty good anticipation of um, what you're going to make, when you're going to make it, and what you need to you know deliver in order to uh, to keep the light bill paid. Um, those are things that. You know, I'd rather not worry about it all, but as any self-employed person does, you, you have to be very aware of that. And it's a fickle business, too. You have to – you try not to be too concerned with the business side, how the books are selling. Um, ultimately, that's not your goal. That's not what you should be 
worried about. But there's always the knowledge that if they're not selling, if the publisher's unhappy, then um, you know away goes your your advance dollars. And um, I've been fortunate, particularly of late, with Little Brown. I'm on a, a six book contract essentially, which is uh, exceedingly long, particularly in this um, uncertain publishing climate. So I've been been very lucky in that some of that worry has been removed for for at least a few years and provided the books sell you know hopefully uh hopefully that those wolves will stay at bay what about the things that you have to do that aren't sitting in writing like book tours like keeping fans happy i mean you're being part of the brand means you have to show up in certain places. Right. You have other duties that have nothing to do – well, I don't think they have anything to do with the creative process. No, the, the writer's life is really at odds with uh, the writing life, if that makes any sense. Um, the, for the writing, you'd like to be alone in a quiet room you know, for weeks on end working on a book. And I've been traveling an, an enormous amount in the, in the past year. I've made, I think – three or four four international trips in the last year and uh, two book tours and a number of speaking engagements. I've been traveling about, I'd say, almost every week. It's been pretty consistent throughout the year. And that is really disruptive for me as a writer because I feel as if every time I come back to the book, it takes me a day or two to remember, to connect emotionally with the story and get back to the place where I was when I left. And then I spend a few days there and get jerked back out and have to do it all over again. So that is a challenge. It's um, it's also, you know, it's great. The publisher's supporting the books by putting you out there on the road. And I feel like you you certainly owe the publisher the professionalism of showing up and trying to, uh, to, to sell, the, sell the books for them. But it is, a, it is a challenge for the writing. What about fans? You have a lot of them. Uh, you have a, a Facebook presence. I won't call it a page, but yeah, I'm not very active on Facebook. Actually, um, the the publisher maintains a Facebook page that they do a pretty good job of of do updating. You, do you get fan mail, the old fashioned kind, or email? The email was um, was pretty prevalent. I removed my email address from my website uh, because it was becoming. Um, something that was just taking too much time up. I always felt obligated to respond, and that's not a bad thing, but it can also eat up a lot of time. Um, you know, I have a blog that the publisher would like me to be more active with. I haven't done a great job of that either. So it is a time drain. And then uh, you know, the, the business correspondence, correspondence with international publishers, things like that have begun to take up more and more time than I originally anticipated. It's a good sign. It indicates that you know people are reading the books and publishing the books. So I'm, I'm not trying to uh, sound woe is me with that, but there's a there's an adjustment and a learning curve in how to in how to manage the time. Is there a way to contract that out? I mean, do you have a team? Yeah, the publisher has great people um, taking as much of that away as as possible, and um, I have I don't know if I call them a team. You know, I have I have people who who help out in, in various ways. I know some writers who run their own websites. I could never do that. That seems so time-consuming. I know some writers who are very active on Facebook. And um, I, you know that, again, may, maybe it's a great tool to reach readers. Uh, maybe I'll find myself doing more of it in the future. But um, for me right now, it just seems more distracting than, than helpful. So when you do get those times to write amid all of this research, brand awareness, uh, fan happiness. 
when all of that is aside and you are burrowing into write, what is that process like? The burrowing in process is what I really enjoy. Um, I, I set a minimum of 1,500 words a day. I used to try and work with um, an, an hour minimum and say, well, I'm going to write four hours today or I'm going to write two hours. And I realized how quickly I could BS that. Um, I could I could play with you know a few sentences and then look at the clock and say, well, what do you know? My time <laughs> is done and now I can go off and uh, you know enjoy myself. But the 1,500-word um, the minimum seems to work really well for me. As, as previously mentioned, I write very ugly first drafts and second drafts and third drafts. So I need to be making forward progress. And um, that, that minimum forces me to continue to move forward in the book. It helps mentally. My mind is never too far from the story. If I'm writing that much every day, it, it, it helps me stay rooted in the story. And there are times when you write more than that? Oh, yeah, that's the minimum. I mean, there are times when, um, you know, I'll put up five or 6,000 words in a day. Um, those aren't the norm. I'd say the average is probably around 2,000. Do you have non-publishing people you trust to toss around ideas? Do you keep your stories very private while you're working on them, or do you risk talking about it? Some people would rather talk about it. Right. Others don't want to mention it with anyone until it's done. Yeah, it's a very individual process. Um, I really keep a very tight circle. I don't like to talk about it too much while it's going on. I certainly don't like to show pages early. The first person who will read my work is my editor. It used to be uh, Bob Hamill was always an early reader, and he still is. I have a very small circle of trusted readers. You've been, you've been in that circle. You understand that. Yes, thank you. The problem for me is the idea of getting too many cooks. Everyone has opinions and, and valid opinions. But the more you hear, you know, the, the more conflicted you become about, well, which one is right? Because they're going to conflict. Um, I like to find a, a group of readers whose opinions I trust and I know will give me blunt feedback and honest criticism, but whose sensibilities also match up with an understanding of what I'm trying to do in the book. And, and so I don't have people coming in trying to rewrite it for me. A lot of books become movies. When you're writing, do you think about the potential for a movie treatment? You've had at least one book optioned, and you hinted around in our earlier segment that there's news on that front. I don't think about the movie potential when I'm writing. I think it would probably change a little bit after you've had one made, um, after you've seen your work actually appear on the screen, and, and you've seen the changes in the process. I, I would imagine then it's harder to get out of your head. Um, when it hasn't happened, it's pretty easy to to ignore it. I'm working on an adaptation right now with um, a gentleman named Scott Silver who just was nominated for an Oscar for Best Screenplay for a film called The Fighter. And we're working, uh, um, co-writing So-Called the River. And with any luck, you know, we'll, we'll find someone with the uh, the budget dollars to actually get the thing made. And wouldn't it be great to see a film crew down in West Bay? And I think that would be... Just fantastic. It would, but isn't it difficult to think about giving that up? Absolutely. Um, it becomes a separate entity, and I think that's how you'd have to think of it. Um, again, I'm speaking from no position of experience here. Um, I've been around writers who have had their work made. It is giving it up, but I, I think it's a very it, it's an entirely different experience reading a book and watching a movie. And the audience always likes to compare: was you know was the movie better than the book? Was the book better than the film? 
those sort of questions, I think, are best left out of the writer's mind. But uh, if I'm ever fortunate enough to see something made, maybe my perspective will change on that. If you're collaborating, though, with another writer, you have some more control or right. influence over the outcome. And that was... At least at this stage. At least at this stage, yeah. And then, um, you know, a director can come in and change everything again or bring in another writer to, to um, do an adjustment or a rewrite of the script. But what was so appealing about the opportunity to work with Scott was um, I did have some involvement. And uh, he, he's a very good writer, but he's also um, very open to hearing my understanding of of the story, uh, not, not just his. And we've had a, a really positive collaboration so far. Um, you know, I hope, hope that it... Go- goes forward and, and something good comes out of it. But that ability to, to be involved has been nice. Um, on the other hand, I hear from Dennis Lehane, who's had the most film success of, of really any crime novelist out there in the last 10 years, that he always likes to be removed from the process. He doesn't mm-hmm. want to adapt his own work. So there's um, And it may depend on the book. may depend on the book, yeah, absolutely. I wanted to be involved in so-called The River in part because it was the Indiana story, and I knew the area well, so... And we're protective of that. I'm very protective of that, yes. Hoosiers, you know. We, and what if they we said, well, we want to do it, but we want to change the location? Well, one of the know? things I kept hearing, which was uh, just hilarious to me, is the manuscript was making its rounds and I was taking calls from producers. They consistently said, it's going to be very difficult to replicate this hotel on set. And then I would have to explain, well, the hotel is real. And why don't you just take a camera out there? <laughs> it seems easier. So um, that was taking a lot of people in L.A. Uh, by surprise. They thought that I would you know, conjured up the entire story of, of West Baden's existence. What an imagination. Yeah, I couldn't take credit for any of that. No, it's really out there. So can you give us a little hint about what lies beyond the ridge? What else is in the manuscript drawer? The ridge is another ghost story. And that will have been three um, supernaturally tinged books in a row. And I'm ready to take a break from that. And I think the next book will be a detective novel um, set up in northeastern Ohio, but not with Lincoln. One of the issues when you create a serious character is that you create a backstory and, and a history for them. And the uh, detective story I want to tell involves a, a backstory and a personal history that's completely counter to what I created for Lincoln. So um, I'll be returning to that turf, but um, through a different lens. And what about beyond that? Is there um, a contemporary fiction? Is there another genre you want to explore? I think the consistent thread through all of my work so far has been suspense. And I I think you can take suspense in um, a lot of different directions. You know, Stephen King has referred to the horror novel as being a small room in the giant house that is suspense. And down the hall is the detective novel. And down the hall from that is the thriller. And I think, um, you know, I can work in that house for a long time and be very happy. Historicals do intrigue me. I'd, I'd love to write a, uh, a war story at some point. Um, you know, the Western, we've talked before about Lonesome Dove and Larry McMurtry. I, uh, he's been a, a tremendous influence. I'd like to to try something along those lines at some point. Lots of research in your future. Lots of research if I go that route, yes. Speaking of Stephen King, he's one of the few authors I like who has managed to write from a woman's perspective. Are you up for that? Well, I've done it um, 
to an extent. In uh, in So Called the River, we have Anne McKinney, who's um, you know a woman in, in her late 80s. In Envy the Night, I wrote from the point of view of um, Nora Stafford, who is a younger woman. And in The Ridge, um, one of the point of view characters is a woman named Audrey Clark, who owns an exotic cat rescue preserve that's based on the one just up the road here uh, that Joe Taft runs. And so I've I've worked from a, a woman's point of view three times, and it is definitely a challenge. Um, that's know, where your critics come in. That's the dangerous thing. But I think good things happen for a writer when they push away from their own comfort zone. The farther you get from your own voice, um, the, the harder you have to work. Uh, I think that's inevitable. And one of my favorite characters I've, I've ever written, and the one I think I've had the best response to without question, was Anne McKinney. And I was writing about this, um, you know, elderly woman when I was, I think, a 26-year-old male at the time. Uh, you know, it, it was a reach. And so I think you have to work harder, but it, it seemed to go over pretty well. And, you know, really, I, I fell in love with that character and that voice. But I was curious to see if people would read it and um, respond negatively. And, and instead, the, the response was, was very positive to Anne. She seems to be the favorite character in that book for a lot of people. Writers use what they know. And we know our cities, our families, our coworkers. Do you ever get caught up in that? You've actually used friends' real names in your in your work. Yes, yes, I have. And um, do people hold your feet to the fire? Or do people say, oh, I recognize great aunt so-and-so in your last book? I haven't had that uh, too much. I try not to base characters around um, real people in, in ways beyond the name. I like to use the names and then change the uh, dynamic of the character. There have been a few exceptions to that. Um, but as a general rule, I try and keep that separate. I'm sure that anyone who knows me well can read the books and, and see um, influences. There are times when family members will say, you know, I hear your dad talking at this moment, or I hear your grandfather at this moment. In, in some cases, I hadn't even really considered it, but then I look at it and I think, yes, you know, I, I can too. But I've never, I've, I've never gone so far as to uh, base a key character around someone, um, someone I really know. You're walking dangerous ground there, and not not just for the reasons that you might offend someone, but it, it's. Um, that issue I talked about of you're suddenly losing the fictional world you've created and reality's slipping in through the cracks. The characters can't really go where you want them to go. Exactly, because I'm worried about what the real person would be doing and mm -hmm. what they're going to think about this. Um, and so I, for that reason, I try and stay away from it. Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers uh, talks about success. Mm -hmm. And one of his theories he comes about in the book is that people who are successful have 10,000 hours of practice time. Right. You must have started your 10,000 hours at age eight. He also breaks it down to about 10 years, 10 years, 10,000 mm -hmm. hours. And it's the exact same thing that Dennis Lehane um, was, was preaching when I was in classes with him about five or six years ago. And I was thinking about that at the time, with you know, it was a little disheartening because I thought, well, I really started writing seriously when I was 16, and I think the best novel I produced in um, straight crime fiction was *Envy the Night*, which would have been written at exactly that 10-year mark. Um, so there might be something. So to it, it pans out. There might be something to it. Yeah, I, I did read *Outliers*. Um, he's he's a little brown author, so I have to support <laughs> Mr. Gladwell. But it, it was a really interesting book. 
So what kind of classes were you in with Dennis Lehane? He taught a, a writer's conference in Florida at Eckerd College, and I went down there two years as a student. Um, now I teach there. And I also took a, a it's a low-residency MFA program in Boston so I could continue to um, to work with Dennis to be in his classes. I didn't complete that program, so I, I have no MFA, but the experience of being in class with Dennis was uh, extremely worthwhile. We've been talking with novelist Michael Carita, whose most recent book, The Cypress House, was just released, and the next one, The Ridge, is due this summer. Michael, tell us about the music we're going to hear to wrap things up. The song is called Bury Me Far From My Uniform by a singer-songwriter named Joe Pug, who I think is just extraordinarily gifted. And um, it was inspirational to the Cypress House because Arlen Wagner, my protagonist, is a World War I veteran, and the uh, hurricane that takes place in the book uh, killed several hundred um, veterans who were left in these camps in the Keys as one of the only Category 5 hurricanes ever to make landfall in, in the U.S., swept through and, and just demolished their camps. And the idea is, um, you know, the, these were soldiers who'd, who'd served their country and then came back and were forgotten. Um, the reason they ended up with these jobs in the Keys goes back to the bonus marchers and, and their move on Washington demanding some sort of compensation for the time of their service. And Joe Pug's song just really seemed to resonate with that idea and I think it's a, a beautiful song, and he's a tremendously talented artist. Michael Carita, thanks for being with us today. This is Gina Asher for Profiles. Thanks for listening. Thank you. I was falling in dead in battle. Must have been Tuesday. I don't know the date. I gave everything everyone asked for But I say where I'll be laid The many dead of my comrades All look the same in this place Won't you bury me far from my uniform So God might remember Do not bother with Congress, with the rich, or with the The program you just heard was recorded in February of 2011. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Christina Kuzmich, executive producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.